Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Gets you in the Christmas spirit, doesn't it? Pretty exciting. My name is Trey, and I get to be the pastor here. Uh, And if you've noticed, we're taking a break from John. I don't know if you're happy or sad, but uh, the next four weeks, we're going to be going through Advent. This is our first time as a church going through Advent, and it'll be the last time in this building, which is bittersweet, I guess, because uh, we're moving into a new building in a few months, which is really exciting. Maybe several months, depending, but um, depending on how you look at it. But I'm very excited, uh, and Advent for me uh, was really void in my life for most of my early childhood. Our church just didn't really talk about it. I wonder, I think it was a little bit because it was a little Catholic, and so I think our church was a little terrified of anything the Catholics did. So, um, But I grew up and realized, like, wow, this is a deep, beautiful tradition. It's been around for hundreds of years, uh, dating probably as really back to the four or five hundreds. Um, and there's been lots of different ways to do it, styles to do it, different colored candles and things like that. Um, but for us, we're just doing more of a traditional route as a church. And, uh, and then each week, we're just talking about one of the four components of basically who Jesus is to us as the coming Messiah. Uh, And so today is the first week, which is all about hope, uh, and then peace, joy, and then we end Christmas Eve, which we'll do in the morning here, like a normal normal Sunday. It just falls that way this calendar year uh, on Jesus' love. And each week we kind of focus on what the the, the scholars would would argue are called offices. I think that sounds way too boring and corporate, uh, or the roles of Christ. Like, what has Christ come to do? Yes, he's our Savior, yes, he's our Lord, but he's also uh, a prophet, he's also a high priest, and he's also king. And so each week we're going to focus on those in light of each word that we're studying and, and um, focusing on. But if you're wondering, the word Advent uh, comes from the Latin word Adventus, and it, it means coming or arrival. And it's actually translated from the Greek word uh, parousia, and parousia is found in your Bible, mainly in the, Old, uh, the New Testament. And that is the word that is, is used for the second coming of Christ. And so if you're familiar at all with what that means, Jesus coming as, a, as flesh, as human on Christmas, as, as born to us, that's the first coming. And then the second coming is that he will come back and return, restore all things, make all things new for us, his people that are part of his community. Uh, so Advent actually has a deep root meaning behind not just we, we await the coming of Christ each year as Christmas, but also we hope and look forward to the second coming of when Christ will make all things new and restore uh, everything. And that, that's cool to have both of those together, which is why we keep celebrating Advent, not only as a reminder of what Jesus has done, what he's doing, but what he will do. And that is, for us, the next 21 days, uh, spend some time on that. Uh, if you're in a core group or uh, some of the families, we, we've all like went full in on uh, an Advent devotional journal thing. Each day for the next 21 days, we'll have that. So if you're in my core group, you have homework to do. It starts today, just so you know. Uh, <laughs> so start the reading. No excuses now. Um, but if you're interested in doing that on your own, we have, I think, more journals. We can get you one if you want to do the daily kind of uh, reflections on Advent. Uh, so, But we're really excited about this. It's a great time. I, I remember praying in our meeting this morning. Um, I just feel like December can just get out of hand. Like we just end up being so busy, so stressed. There's so many good festivity things that we want to partake in. But then we look back in January and we're just like, man, 
I don't even remember December other than a few like parties. Um, and so us as a church, we're trying really hard to guard and honor your guys' pace as a, as a community this December. So we have a lot of stuff going on the next week or so, and then we really just kind of stop and slow down for the next few weeks so that you can just trust that you guys use the time well. And, and if we can just be well-rested, at least for December, ending the year well, I think that would be a really honoring thing to the Lord just at a pace that we feel like is good and uh, rejuvenating and also reflective on the spirit of Advent. So if you've got your Bibles, let's jump in. We're going to be in Isaiah 9, as Milo read. Uh, it's a great, great verse. While, we're, while you're turning there, though, as I, as I mentioned, today is all about the idea of hope. And hope is fulfilled through Jesus as the great prophet. Uh, and if you are Jewish now or Jewish then, your great prophet was Moses. That was the guy. And the point that we read, and if you read the book of Hebrews... Uh, Jesus is better than Moses, better than Melchizedek, the high priest, better than David, the king. That's the point, basically, of Hebrews. Jesus is better than all of those. And today, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is our great high prophet, or not high prophet, um, great prophet, and he is uh, fulfilling what a prophet is to do. And so a prophet, simply, if you were just to define it uh, in, like, one phrase, I like to define it as the mouthpiece of God. They just are in charge of letting the people of Israel know hey, here's what God is either wanting or wants to do or will do. And, uh, and their job was to basically just give that information to the people. Now, being a prophet, though, was brutal. And uh, you're typically lonely, had a hard time making friends, had to do some wild stuff. If you read some different prophets, uh, some of them had been given some tasks and lifestyle choices that I don't think any of us would ever want to partake in. And, um, but that was their calling. And they stayed true to it. Some of them were beaten, killed, hated. I mean, it was a tough job. And, but their goal was to let Israel know, here's what God is communicating to the people. Now, today we're going to spend a lot of time in Isaiah. He's a prophet. Um, and we'll spend some time in the next few weeks with the prophets because the point of Advent is, is sitting into the, into the coming of Christ, not only from like a Jew waiting for the Messiah, but also just us knowing why the Old Testament matters and why these prophecies matter and why they're fulfilled and ultimately why we have hope then. And in the prophecies, there's just like a little bit I want to just teach on that's sort of on a, a side caveat, but I think is really important. Anytime we talk about the word prophecy, I like to define it, I like to be very clear what it is and what it isn't, uh, because in the modern culture, prophecy is like sort of a really confusing word that we don't talk a lot about. Um, and so when I'm talking about prophet or prophecy, the actual word in uh, the Hebrew is nabi, it means spokesperson. So if you're a prophet, you're a spokesperson. I said you're a spokesperson with obviously with a divine voice, with using God's voice to the people. Um, but the other two translations that are used in the Hebrew is roa and hosa, and those basically mean seer, a person who sees. Now, you're, to me, like seer, that feels very mystic and very, like, not good. But seer, in that point, was a little bit more uh, innocent in what it meant. Uh, and then even in the Greek word, prophetess, uh, meanings, meaning one who speaks forth. And so this is where we get the idea of what I would argue there's two types of prophecy. There's foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling is revealing the things that will happen of God. Foretelling is reminding and encouraging the things of God and truth in a timely uh, fashion, meaning it's timely for that time. And the, the difference is really important because in the Old Testament, most of what you're having is foretelling. It's people saying, here's what God is going to do. Here's the promises that he's made. And most of those promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. So for foretelling in this modern era, Foretelling is not really necessary. Like, you can tell me if it's going to rain in 10 days, but it doesn't really matter. Like, I have all that I need for salvation and hope and life to the fullest in the Bible. And that's why a lot of times we are very uh, 
very cautious about foretelling prophecy. Uh, there's been a lot of abuse and a lot of danger of people doing that. However, foretelling prophecy is something that Paul talks about, something that Paul writes about and encourages in the church. In fact, he says that prophecy is one of the greatest gifts in the church and that he would rather have one word of prophecy than 10,000 words of tongues, right? And that uh, we know that the greatest of all is love. But prophecy is a pretty close second to Paul. And what he's, he's talking about is an idea of foretelling. It's an idea of reminding people the truths of God in a timely nature. And the goal of that, he says, there's like three or four um, components of that. There's either encouragement, exhortation, challenging, confrontation. Those are sort of the perimeters of why you would give a prophecy. So if it falls in those lines, then it would be considered a prophecy. That does not mean that I need to go up here and be like, guys, it's, it's going to rain in two months, right? That's not something that, that Paul would think is a prophetic word. It would be more something, me encouraging someone in a, or challenging someone in, in a time and a space that God is speaking specifically to where they're at. Uh, and so prophecy, honestly, can look a lot like encouragement. It doesn't, you don't need to be overly spiritual about like, yeah, it was, we were prophesying for this person. Right? You're not like getting this insane, crazy dream story. It doesn't need to be that way. It can sometimes, and that's where I think there's a little bit of looseness in it. Um, but I want to share that because when we talk about prophecy, I just want you to know what we're talking about, what we're not talking about. So hopefully that caveat is helpful regardless of today's teaching. But today we're talking about mainly foretelling. What is Isaiah talking about? Uh, and there's 16 prophets in the Old Testament that, are, that have their own books. There's more, but those are, there's 12 major, or sorry, four major, 12 minor, uh, which means when they were all together, they had a hard time getting into bars. You know what? First service liked it a lot more than you guys. So. Sarah Muha was like, are you going to tell that one again in second service? And I was like, I don't know. And then Jimmy, who's a dad, was like, you absolutely should. And I was like, I'm a dad, so this is my life now. Let's do it. Let's just full send on the dad jokes. If you didn't understand it, you can talk to the person beside you. Uh, so four major, 12 minor. Uh, Isaiah major. We're going to be in him, obviously, uh, chapter 9. And like I said, the goal of them is at the timely nature that they're in foretelling what is God teaching them and communicating all that type of stuff. So in Isaiah chapter 9, the scene is the, the Israelites are being taken away in captivity. There's two different captivities. They deal with the Assyrians and the Babylons. I've mentioned this probably before. They're very similar, cut from the same cloth. But they're evil people. They are brutal. They are like not who you, well, you never really want to be captured, but definitely not who you want to be captured by. And the people are being led away, and Isaiah is, is basically prophesying what God is speaking over them in the midst of their exile and slavery and oppression. And so this is where we get uh, um, a lot of Isaiah, chapter 9 specifically. He says, The people walking in darkness see a bright light, and light shines on those who live in a land of deep darkness. Seems like a very good verse for contrast, right? All about light and dark. Uh, but communicating, you're going into a land of darkness, but like the Lord is not leaving you. He's not... Uh, he's still present and among you. And Isaiah is actually writing in, in a grammatical perfect tense, which would imply that it's not only past, present, and also the future. So this light has always been, is, and will always be. And he's just communicating the deep trust and reality of God, never abandoning his people. So in the midst of absolute chaos and darkness, we can be sure of God's promises and his plan. And so that's where I want to center in today for us. You know, we obviously can read the story. There's going to be some stories that Isaiah is pulling from that remind the Israelite people of the hope they have in God. But hope, in Hebrews, says that hope is basically uh, just faith acted out, right? Faith is what we don't see, hope in what we don't see, and what we're convinced we don't see. And so the two really are together. So if you say, I want to have hope, faith is, is, is always in, in tandem with that. 
And for us, the idea of hope, the idea of faith, honestly, I was thinking a lot about it um, this week. Like, hope just seems very juvenile. It seems very childish. When you say, like, you're, you're having faith in something, you're having hope in something, I think most people are, are skeptical. Most people, like, look down on you, like, oh, you got to have hope. It, it feels like Christmas time for a little kid who's really excited about all these presents. And I don't know about you, but Christmas time to me now is, like, socks and a couple things off Amazon. Like, it's not near as exciting, like, with all this stuff when I was little, right? Whether it was new toys, new game system, or whatever. And I slowly grew out of that, right? Become an adult, you think differently. Your curiosity, your imagination, your just light spirit sort of starts to leave you. The, the, the harshness of world, the world starts to callous you. And, and, uh, and you have a hard time seeing a deep value and belief of hope as something that you want to embody. Because hope is away and far away. It's not real. It's not tangible. I can't touch it. What I can touch and feel is hard. And life is difficult. And like hope to me just seems like, a cheap way to get through the day, right? And so in our world, that's kind of how it's seen, especially in America. I, I think that there's like a, you know, we talk about having a childlike faith, but it feels very, okay, yeah, sure, childlike faith, but you don't really want to be a child. You don't want to run around being excited about what God's doing um, because you're fearful of how that may look or um, you're fearful that it might not be deep enough, right? It might be shallow. And, and we see, though, that hope is a part of what we, who we are as followers of Jesus, that hope is not to be separated from our our present day, we get so busy we forget, but it is a part of who we are. We are to spend time, especially in this season, and to hope not only the things God will do, but to remind ourselves of what he has done, what he has promised, and what he has followed through with. And that's what Isaiah does in the next three verses. He says, you've enlarged the nation, you give them great joy. They rejoice in your presence as harvesters rejoice, as warriors celebrate when they divide up the plunder. He says, for their oppressive yoke, and the club that strikes their shoulders, the cudgel that oppressors use on them, you have shattered as in the day of Midian's defeat. Indeed, every boot that marches and shakes the earth and every garment dragged through blood is used as fuel for the fire. So here Isaiah is giving them this picture of the oppressors in whom they're with and going to, and this, this time is going to be removed by God. Like God will redeem them and free them. And a lot of times in modern days, we use this passage for one of two uh, arguments. The first one is that God does not want people to be oppressed. And so our goal is to have a massive amount of energy put into justice and politics and fairness and in, in creating a, a world with a lack of oppression. And um, in this case, you know, it was the Assyrians of Babylons, and then in first century, you know, it was Rome, and now today, gosh, I mean, you might feel like you're politically oppressed in America, but man, you, you think about other countries, like the rest of the world is far more politically oppressed than you are. I remember we were walking in the streets of Guatemala when we served there, and we were talking to Jorge, who's our missionary, and, and he was like, oh, you know, there, there's a lot of people with microphones and stuff in the one city, and he's like, yeah, they're going through and doing like their presidential campaign stuff and, and, and rallying people up, and I was like, oh, how's, the, you know, how's that go? And he was like, well... Nine out of the ten people running for president all have a criminal record and have been in jail. So what do you think, how do you think it's going? Uh, and, you know, you kind of laugh, but it's like that's just, they don't even have a choice, right? Like good people don't make it that far. They get killed. They get murdered um, or put in jail forever. And so to be able to be a part of a, a country and a government where you feel helpless, where you feel like um, evil just keeps perpetuating, right, and you can't do anything about it, you're just a piece of the cog in the machine. I mean, I'm sure you even feel that with American politics. You're like, well, I could become a politician, and try to do good, but then I'll probably lose my soul and be just like everyone else, right? Or I'll have to play the game. 
Uh, and you just kind of feel hopeless. Like, I, I feel like, okay, my vote's one of millions. Is it really that, like, is it really that big of a deal? Like, grateful that we fought for voting, but does it really do anything? Like, I don't feel very hopeful in our government. I don't feel like they're guiding us in the right place, and maybe you feel that, or maybe you're hoping your political party or, or some of the things that you want to see will, will provide security. But at the end of the day, this passage is talking about that, but it's also talking about something else, and we have to have both together for it to be um, for it to be well-rounded. The second piece that it's talking about is just spiritual oppression. It's just sin. When they were brought away into exile, they were brought away because their spiritual sin was so bad that God just couldn't, I mean, he couldn't even be with them. They were doing some really terrible things when you read about it, and really was no different than Babylon and Assyria. And, and so they're taken away, but they're, they're also oppressed spiritually. One, not being able to be at the temple, the presence of God, and following his, his laws. But two, just being thrown into a culture that has not, no care of God or Yahweh in any capacity. So this passage is talking about both of these. And a scholar that I was reading, his name is J. Oswald, put this really well that both of these matter. He says, to make God's promises primarily political is to overlook the profound insight of the New Testament and the Old that the chief reason for the absence of shalom, or shalom is the Jewish idea of harmonious relationship. Uh, the absence of shalom among human beings is because of the absence of shalom between God and human beings through sin. Without shalom between persons, freedom cannot long exist. But to act as if the forgiveness of sin and the consequent personal relationship are all that matters is to succumb to a, a platonic uh, distinction of existence into a real spiritual world and an unreal physical world a distinction which is thoroughly unbiblical. It says, The Messiah lifts the yoke of sin in order to lift the yoke of oppression, and the church forgets either yoke at its peril. What he's saying is, both of these things deeply matter to the heart of God, but if you want to acknowledge political difficulty and oppression in, in the world at large, it starts in your heart. It starts in your ability to acknowledge your sin and your brokenness before God because that fractures everything in the world. You want to fix the world... You can't just fix it by systems, by putting the right people in office. You fix it by deep conviction and, and uh, confrontation of sin and repentance. That is what we believe as Christians. And it's the truth of the narrative of the Bible. I mean, the first sin, Adam and Eve, boom, they sin, separation, right, kicked out of the garden, all this. And then Cain and Abel, what's the sin? I mean, it's, it's, it's relational strain leading to literal murder, which then down the road, more and more murder, more and more separation, more and more generational sin, right? It's just a cluster of sin. And it's all because of, of separation from God and, and, and sin causing separation of that. So we want to acknowledge both of those. There is sin that we are to own. There's also sin in the world. And God wants both of those to be made right in shalom. But the way that we look at that and what his role is, is really important. And so Isaiah, when he says these three verses, he has two phrases that I think are really important that we can cling on to uh, as seeing fulfilled. The first one is the oppressive yoke that he mentions. And this is figurative and literal. I mean, when they're dragged away in slaves, there's chances there's chains around your neck or your body, and you are being beaten and, and driven forward, right? And it's a literal oppressive, like, yoke. There's, you get no choice in it. There's no freedom. And um, what do we know that Jesus comes to replace another yoke in Matthew 13? Not the yoke of exile, but the yoke of the law and the weight of the, the hypocrisy of the law with something very new. But Jesus also puts a yoke on. But he says, my yoke is light, my burden is easy. So Isaiah drawing forth that God would remove the yoke of oppression, and then Jesus fulfilling this with a new yoke, this light and gives life and freedom in the fullest. 
And it's just a really beautiful reminder of that becoming true. The second um, phrase that's really important that, that we probably have a hard time understanding is uh, when he used, and they use cities and things like that in, in, in some of these um, prophets, we're like, I have no idea where that is. You know? And so he says, as the day of Midian's defeat. And you're like, okay, cool. I don't know where Midian is. I don't even know what a Midianite is. You know, um, but if you think about it, if I was to, to tell you a story today and I use specific cities, you would assume things about those cities. Like if I was to say we went up and took a journey up to that city up north, right, like you would have feelings about that city up north that I won't name, right? Or as if I was to go to Cincinnati or Pittsburgh, right, you have these different assumptions of each city and what they're known for, what they're bad at, what they're good at. So when he's saying that you've experienced, you know, um, winning in the day of Midian's defeat, He's drawing back to an old story that's found in Judges 6 and 7. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to give you the cliff notes. Uh, Because the Israelites are being carried away. They're hopeless. Where is hope? Where is God? And Isaiah says, don't forget about the Midian's defeat. What was the Midian's defeat? Crazy story. Judges 6 says, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord turned them over to Midian for seven years. The Midianites overwhelmed Israel. They came to devour the land, and Israel was so severely weakened by Midian that the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, a cry of repentance, a cry of acknowledging the brokenness of Shalom and their sin. And when the Israelites cried out to the Lord for, uh, for help because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. And the prophet said to them, This is what the Lord God of Israel has said. I brought you up from Egypt and took you out of that place of slavery. I rescued you from Egypt's power and from the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave their land to you. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you are now living, but you have disobeyed me. And so this prophet is telling him like, hey, I, you remember Egypt? Yeah, you were enslaved and miserable and oppressed and I brought you out of that and I told you here is what right living looks like, here is what shalom looks like and wow, you're just doing a terrible job and so you're serving yourself back into uh, a life that you want which is just not good. And you're leave, you know, abandoning what I've given you. But he's reminding them, I was faithful to that promise. I brought you out of Egypt. And so then a Lord, uh, an angel of the Lord comes to a man named Gideon, if you've heard of Gideon. And, the, and it says, the Lord is with you, courageous warrior. And Gideon <laughs> says to him, pardon me, uh, but if the Lord is with us, why has such disaster overtaken us? Where are all his miraculous deeds our ancestors told us about? They say, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. I don't know about you, but maybe you can relate with Gideon. You're like trying to just live this life following Jesus. And everyone's like, hey, God's with you. God's, God's in your presence. Like God, God is he's among you. And you're like, I'm sorry. I'm not seeing it. Right? Like, who are you to tell me like blessings for you when everything around me I see is disaster and chaos and this God that we talk about seems just so far off and distant and, like, not doing anything anymore. Seems like he got lazy and he's got his keyboard on autopilot. Like, he's just not doing anything. And that's what Gideon's saying. is like, we're, we're are, at this time, we are being surrounded by, um, by many nights. We have no control. We're, no one is following you. Everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. And, and he comes to Gideon and he says, hey, the Lord is with you. Do, do you have hope? Do you have faith? Do you trust me? He says... Then uh, the Lord himself turned to him and said, you have the strength to deliver Israel from the power of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And Gideon says to him, but Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Just look, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my family. This is a very, if you keep your mind, very bad resume. <laughs> 12 tribes, 
Manasseh, not so great. Lois clan in Manasseh, youngest son of Lois clan in Manasseh, talking about like bottom level employee, like maybe can clean the bathrooms. That's like their that's their bandwidth and like ceiling, right? And he's just like, hey, I don't I don't know if you like you picked the wrong guy, you know, wrong name tag. Like this is not the guy you want. And God is like, nope, you're it. I'm with you. And so even in the moment of, of hopelessness, God will use the most unlikely people to push forward his truth and his promises. And uh, the Lord says to him, ah, like, yep, you're right. You're definitely down low. Uh, but I will be with you, and you will strike down the whole Midianite army. Now, at this time, the Midianite army was anywhere from 130 to 150,000 people. Gideon has a great little campaign, and he rallies 32,000, which is really significant, pretty good number. However, if, you, if you're good at math, or just basic math, uh, 32,150 is not good odds, especially in uh, close hand-to-hand combat. This isn't like modern warfare where they, had, they also had 15 tanks, you know. Just, you know, hand fighting, one to five, not a good ratio, uh, no matter how good you are. And so 32,000 men are like, you know what? We're just going to have hope in God. And Gideon did some testing, and I'm not going to talk about it. It's a different part of the story, to make sure God was really calling him. But once he realized it, he's like, okay, so he musters up 32,000 men. He brings him before God, and he's like, okay, I guess we're just going to have to trust you that this will work out. And then what does God do? God's like, no, nah, that's too many. Like, send away the ones that are scared. <laughs> All right, if you're a wuss, you guys can leave. <laughs> 22,000 of them thought, okay, I'm not staying. 10,000 left, right? Do you trust me, Gideon? Do you have hope? Do you have faith that what I say, I will do? Now it's 10,000 to 150,000. Uh, and then God's like, Ah, it's still too many, right? What, a, what kind of, like, stop talking on the phone, Gideon. Just stop talking to God and go, right? Every time you talk to him, he's like, that's too many. He literally, this is in the Bible, he literally says, that's too many. Go watch him drink water and get rid of the guys who drink the water normal. I just want the guys who lap it up like a dog, <laughs> which apparently there were 300 of those. So out of the 10,000, 9,700 9, gone because they're over there drinking their they're Aquafina, like all normal, right? And these other weirdos are over here like lapping up water like dogs. And he's like, those are my guys, right? <laughs> 300 men. Do you still have hope, Gideon? At this point, man, you're like, my name is not Gideon. I run away. Like, you're like, I'm done. Let's call it. I don't even know what the three, 300 guys are looking around like, what is going on, right? Also, why did I have to drink water like that? I could have been gone if I would have drank it normal. If, you're, if you ever play Call of Duty or anything, I mean, this is a 500 KDR. This is, like, impossible. It's 500 kills for one because 300 to 150,000, each guy has to kill 500 people, and they would probably still, everyone would still, like, die, but that's, that's the ratio. You'd have to have 501 to be alive, right? That's just not going to happen. It just will not happen. Unless you're David, who, like, got a couple hundred. He was pretty impressive, but he was also, like, David. This is not looking good. And God is like, hey, do you still have hope? Or do you still have faith? Do you still trust me? I brought you out of Egypt. Do you trust me now? And Isaiah is saying, what happened, guys? Midian was defeated. It's a cool story. They run in there. Midian starts attacking each other. There's complete chaos. And these 300 guys just destroy all of Midian, right? Just gone. <clears throat> like, that's a pretty cool story. Man, I wonder if that ever happened again. It did happen again with Hezekiah. They're surrounded in their, in their city. Hezekiah is pleading out to the Lord. He's like, please don't let it end like this. Please, Lord, we, we haven't been great, but like, just, re, just repent, whatever, right? And uh, this is um, uh, uh, Sennacherib, right? He's the king, which we have historical accounts of this happening. He's got 150,000 troops surrounding the walls. They're just like, we're, we're done. Like, Hezekiah's like, what do we do? You know, fast, pray, all this stuff. And God's like, yeah, you know what? I'll deliver you. 
And then he's like, great, where are the troops? She's like, I don't need any troops. We'll be all right. And they're like, what? And so that night, literally, an angel of the Lord just kills all, like, all of them in one night, just all dead. And the ones that wake up alive are like, we should get out of here. And they run away. And what's funny is in the historical accounts, it just, you know, Sennacherib doesn't want to admit he just got wrecked by a god. So he's like, they got there and then decided it wasn't worth it and, and ran back. Like, there's no admit of, like, any humility. Like, yeah, we lost, like, hundreds of thousands of troops or whatever, but we just decided not to take it over once we got there. It was like, this isn't a very pretty place. We'll leave. But, I mean, God is like, I will do what I say I'll do. And it's so easy from a human perspective, whether it's a year or a day or a month or a century or a generation, that we forget that God, and we believe he really won't do what he says he's going to do. And Isaiah's like, trust me, there's chains around your neck and you're being led out of what is your promised land. You will come back. Your oppressor will be ended. And I promise you that you will experience freedom, not just physically with politics, but spiritual health. And so what is his plan? What do we put our hope in? What is Isaiah getting at? Verse 6, a child which sounds so stupid. <laughs> okay, yeah, cool, we'll be good. Oh, a child. All right, well, childs are pretty defenseless, and they're not going to defeat the Assyrian army, right? Like, a child. But a child that's been born to us, he's among us, he's with us, and what will he do? He will shoulder responsibility. The NIV says, you know, shoulder, the, um, the government's on his shoulders, right? The net just leaves that out because it's trying to show that he, he shoulders everything, not just the government, but all sin and all of the world, that he is in control, and he will do it. He will be born to us, and he will be called, there's four awesome names, Wonderful Advisor, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast. He will bring measurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne over David's kingdom, establishing it, strengthening it, and he will promote, what, justice, fairness. And from this time forward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the heavens' armies will accomplish this. Isaiah brings hope to his people by saying, we're going to have a young child, and everything will be on his shoulders, and it's all going to be good. Talk about having faith or hope, right? Like, okay, that sounds like a great plan. But why is he able to do this? Why is he able to handle this? Four reasons. He's the wonderful counselor. The net says he's an extraordinary strategist. I love that because... Uh, his un- he has unfailing spiritual wisdom and strategy. Think about like any of the times when the Pharisees are trying to pin Jesus. They, they think they've got him. Oh, he's going to answer this way, this way, and then we got him, and he just like takes this third way, just profoundly. And we even try to do that all the time and just fail. We just cannot do it. He has this deep wisdom and understanding of the heart of God and, and the truth. He's a mighty God. The, the phrase here best describes him as a great hero, meaning that he's so powerful that he can absorb all evil thrown at him to the point where there's none left. Imagine that, that, that Jesus is not just taking evil, but he's taking all of it and so that there's nothing left. Nothing left to throw. The devil's got nothing left. That all evil will cease to be because Jesus has taken all of it. Talk about a guy who can put something on his shoulders. All the evil in the world, he can absorb it all. Third, he's an everlasting father, meaning that he does not impose on himself, on his children like rulers and kings. That was a, a common language as your ruler, your king was your father, right? It was like, the authority that you submitted to your father, and typically that was through ruling and hardship and, and dictatorship and things like that. But Jesus is a king and a father who does it through submission and through sacrifice. He's a father who lays down his life for his kids for eternity. He is the best father that we can imagine. And lastly, and I don't want to steal too much from another week, 
He is the Prince of Peace. J. Oswald says that his coming establishes peace, not by brutal squashing of all defiance, but by a means of a transparent vulnerability which makes defiance pointless. Somehow through him will come the reconciliation between God and man, and that will make possible reconciliation between man and man. So Isaiah is creating this web of story. He's saying, you're being oppressed. God is with us. God is not giving up. God is promising us. This is the hope that we cling to. We've been clinging to it. We will cling to it, and it will happen. Remember Midian, right? Remember how God was there and present with us then. Remember from Midian, Egypt. And Egypt, God brought us out of slavery and brought us, and there's this just like this just depreciation of belief and faith and hope, and then, and then God's like, look, I'm here. And now we're in this era where like, we feel that again, where you're sitting around in your life and you feel like God's not really present and you hear about people being in the presence of God and you're like, that just doesn't even feel real. I don't believe it. Like God is not. If God was around, he wouldn't allow this or he wouldn't do that or I'd have better reconciliation with this or what it may be, right? And in the same moment, I'm sure when Isaiah was prophesying to the people, they're like, you're crazy, dude. I got a chain around my neck. But in that moment, what do we do? We remind ourselves that God always does what he says he's going to do. Always. Might take longer than we want. Might look different than we want. But he will finish what he started. And what's crazy about us having the advantage of living 2,000 years later after Jesus did everything that he did is that we, most of it is finished. Like we have the ability right in this very moment to experience personal salvation and freedom from sin, from spiritual oppression. The things that we are letting consume us, the idols that we put our, our knees towards, that, 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 that can be gone in a moment of, of repentance, that we can trust in that. But as we all know, it is not fully here yet. And this is why Advent matters, because yes, we remind ourselves of, a, of, a, uh, of God who became man and was born as a human and then died for us, but also that he is coming again to make all things right. And Isaiah is like, look, Look at the past, remember it in the present, and look in hope towards the future. I remember um, Tim Keller, one of, towards the, like, his last year of life, he died recently. Um, somebody was interviewing him in the middle of the pandemic on Zoom and was like, hey, you know, how, are you, how are you counseling people through this? Everyone's really stressed, socially anxious, um, struggling, numbing, all this kind of stuff. And he was given like, a longer answer that was more nuanced, but he ended with like, the most basic answer ever, and I just like, love it. He said... He said, if you believe that Jesus died and was dead for three days and rose again, if you actually believe that that happened, then I think that everything else will be okay. And it sounds elementary, but what are we called to have? Childlike faith. It's true. All the stuff and all the chaos in our world and all of the helplessness that we feel, and all the fear that we inject in ourselves, whether it's news or social media or friends or whatever, and we just live in this state of fear and anxiety and, and control and whatever, like all of that is just not going to stand against the God of the universe and the wonderful counselor and the, the everlasting father. I mean, it's just not. And so Peter, as we close, I'll invite Nick up. Uh, Peter, Peter has this little comment in First Peter he calls our hope a living hope, which I really like. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a living hope. It has life. It doesn't, it's not just like an idea. It lives among us. The NLT calls it our great expectation. 
Like, what are you most expecting and excited about? Uh, you know, obviously when you're little, you're pumped for gifts, right? You're like, this is going to be great. I'm going to have this new thing, right? For us, I think at this point we realize that, yeah, gifts are cool, but like the greatest gift is just freedom. It's just the ability to be known, to be vulnerable, to be uh, in, in connection with our creator, and to just be able to yearn for that over and over and for God to reveal himself to us. That's what we desire, and that's our great expectation. And a lot of that is here now, and it's available to us, but a lot of it is not yet. And in that midst of not yet, we're allowed to mourn, and we're allowed to grieve, and we're allowed to have a chain around neck and say, this sucks. And I'm at a really hard time believing that God is who he says he is or that he will do what he said he will do. But I know that he has, and I know that he can. And a lot of times, the thing in between is not him, it's us. I was thinking about when I was writing this, like modernizing Gideon to a story like in Iraq. I'm like, hey, you guys never heard this story. This happened in Iraq 10 years ago. But then I was like, I'll be insensitive to that. But if, this, if the same exact story in Gideon happened to U.S. soldiers in the war of Iraq, and you heard about it, right, would you just profess Jesus in that moment? I don't think you would. I think you either wouldn't believe it, I think you'd either try to, like, try to justify, oh, well, like, this happened too, like, the, you know, or, oh, like, it didn't really happen like that, or, or well, it's over there, right? It, I, it's just a story. Like, you wouldn't, it wouldn't really change anything. For, like, five minutes while you're scrolling, you'd be like, wow, that's crazy, and then you'd be on the next thing. Hope for us has to sit, and we have to realize that, that most of the reason why we don't have hope is because of ourselves. We don't really want it to be true. We're not living like we want it to be true. We don't really believe that, that God did this. And he did. And he's not done. I, I, I didn't mention this in the first service, but I just thought I'd read it. This is, this is the great expectation. In Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will all be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. And then he says, write these words down, for they're true and trustworthy. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be what? My children. Some of us need to be a child, and we need to just sit in the hope that is Jesus now and forever, that it is real, and that we do trust in what God has done and will do and will continue to do. Man, I could just sit up here and tell you all of what God has done this year in our church, and I'm going to do that next week. It's going to be great at our birthday. Uh, you're going to be pumped, but it, this is the hope we have. And so our reflection this week as we transition into a time of reflection is just, is honestly just like, do I really trust that Jesus is in control? In the words of Isaiah and what we're going to sing in just a second is, do I really trust that the world is just on his shoulders, that the political power is here, the war in Israel and Hamas and Gaza, that, that God is is not only aware in, in, in all of that, but he is mourning more deeply than you possibly could. And that he's mourning even more deeply about all the other injustices that are happening in the world that aren't even getting news coverage. Like he cares more deeply than you ever will about each person in this world. And his heart breaks, but there's still hope. 
And for some of you, it's hard to find hope when you're in that suffering and that pain, but I would argue that's the exact time you need it is when you're, you're enslaved and you're traveling off to captivity and you're like, this is hopeless. And Isaiah's like, let me give you hope. Let me remind you. So for you, maybe, it's, maybe there's an area, like I said, you just need to surrender. It's not about the, the, the truth of the hope, but it's about the, the deep power structures that you're believing that you won't let go of. It's the, the sin in your life that you won't acknowledge and that you're hiding from. Or there's just small ways that you're living in fear that you're just not trusting that God cares, is present, and will do what he said he's going to do. And the second question, which is this vision idea, like I read in Revelation, is what is it even, like what am I even doing all this for? What is a vision of my life? I think about the fact that I am so tired of being marketed fear. I don't know about you. I'm ready to just chuck my phone off a mountain because all they want to sell me is fear so that I'm insecure and I make dumb decisions and I try to numb and I buy things. That's, that's it, right? That's what sells. I'm so tired of being marketed fear. Not that it doesn't matter. Not that, things, not that I want to just be in a herm in the woods, but I'm tired of fear dominating my thought life. I'm tired of fear dominating the way I make decisions the way that I think about people, the way that I trust in what the Lord is doing, I'm tired of it. And for us, a spirit of fear, that's not where we want to be. And that's not going to trust that God is present. And so for many of us, just imagine what it would be like to not live in a state of fear, to not have to control every moment, to not have to worry about what people think about you and what you said and how you need to act or how you need to be or the job you need to have or the marriage you need to have or the... You know, just imagine the freedom and the lightness that you can feel when you are walking in step each day, not having to be fearful of things. That is what we want, and that is what the Spirit can give us if we're willing to open ourselves up. So I want to give you some time. Uh, we have reflection time every Sunday, and we have, you know, four ways that we believe this helps form you into the image of Christ. First one is obviously reflection on those questions. Uh, you can also have, there's people in the back who'd love to pray for you about any of this that you're navigating through. You just want people to pray the Spirit just over you in, in this season. We also have a box in the back we call our giving or bringing box, and that's just a reminder that giving is an act of worship, and it's bringing back what is already God's uh, in that. And then um, we also have the breading cup in the front and in the back, gluten-free and grape juice. And uh, today, very timely to remind ourselves that the hope we have is in taking that. We're hoping that that, that is in itself, not really Christ's blood and body, but that what he did was real and that what he did is saving us today and in the future. And that's the beautiful thing of why we do it together because we're all in the same room, all going before that and reminding ourselves we all need this and that when we all receive this, we're able to be a light to the world and we're able to change the oppression of the world through the way that we are right before God in that. So I want to give you some time to reflect on that. Um, but what I'd like to do is I'd just like to take a moment and I'd like to just let our hearts um, be open to what the Spirit is communicating to us. Um, so I just want to pray. Nick, you can pause just for a second. And if you're willing, you can just open up your hands. Lord, we, each of us need hope, whether we realize it or not, whether we are in a season of just desperation or we're in a season of pride or we're numb or we're angry or we're hurt. You are in the midst of all of those feelings and all of that pain. And Lord, we want to be like children, just pumped to be in the arms of their Father. So Holy Spirit, would you reveal the things in our heart that need to be brought before you? The fear that we are holding on to that we don't probably realize how deep it goes. 
I'm going to lay those at your feet. I want to surrender those things. Lord, we all have those things. Holy Spirit, would you work in us? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.